Hello, this is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. It's our blog at sccenglish.ie. Welcome to the SCC English podcast number six. This is Julian Godin from St. Columbus College and today, 3rd May 2009, we have our third Macbeth revision podcast. These weekly 10 or 15 minute sessions are leading up to the leaving certificate in early June and so far we've had one on the soliloquy in Act 1, Scene 7, If It Were Done, When Tis Done, and last week on Lady Macbeth. These podcasts are designed to freshen up your thinking on the play and prompt some reflection on key moments, ideas and characters. Today's podcast is called King Macbeth, Law and Order in Scotland, and I'll be examining an idea that is at the very heart of the play, indeed one without which the story just wouldn't take place at all. This is the idea of kingship and the expectations about the way society is run. It's worth spending a little time examining the political and cultural expectations of Shakespeare's time first, before moving on to some key moments in the play, since although Macbeth is supposedly an historical drama, the real Macbeth ruled from 1040 to 1057, the Scottish society we see on stage is deeply imbued with the contemporary cultural views of Shakespeare's England. These are indeed consistent with ideas of order that we see in the Denmark of Hamlet and the ancient Britain of King Lear, and so I'll discuss this briefly before moving on to look at the nature of Scotland as we see it at the start of the play, and then some key moments later which tell us about the nature of kingship, rule, law and order. You'll be used to the idea of cultural context from your comparative studies. Every society has structures and cultural beliefs that can profoundly affect its people's lives, and it's worth applying the idea of cultural context to the play Macbeth. When you do, you see how critical it is to the story, and particularly to Macbeth himself. Shakespeare lived in a time of turmoil unimaginable to us now in contemporary Europe. England was not the kind of stable society we have been used to for some decades since the end of the Second World War. Specifically, it had been racked by violent religious conflict for some time. Elizabeth I came to the throne six years before Shakespeare was born, and died in 1603, being replaced then by James I, already James VI of Scotland, and a very distant relative of the real King Duncan. I'm not going to go into all the political and religious complexities of this moment, but suffice it to say that the crucial figure of the monarch, and the uncertainties caused by the moment when one took over from another, were bound to have been very much in Shakespeare's mind when he wrote Macbeth. And two years after James I came to the throne, and perhaps just as Shakespeare was writing this play, the gunpowder plot in November 1605 nearly succeeded in what would have been the most spectacular explosion in European history, blowing up the Houses of Parliament while the King was speaking. You have to imagine a very different society to ours, one in which, for instance, religion was at the heart of the society and in which hierarchy or degree also were central. Here are the words of the critic Lena Cowan Orlin. Like every other object in the universe, man was believed to have his degree or place. He was ranked between angels and beasts in what was known as the great chain of being. It was thought to be natural that children should honour their parents, that families should be headed by fathers, 
and that countries should have kings. Political order was founded in an unequal distribution of power. Political thought exhorted obedience to all those higher in the hierarchy. I'll come back later on to discuss how this is central to the play Macbeth. But here's another paragraph from the same critic that focuses on the key question of order. It was universally agreed that government was necessary to thwart the chaos, savagery and cannibalism that would otherwise prevail. This was to prevent mankind from descending on that great chain of being to the level of beasts. The overwhelming consensus was that the best form of government was monarchic. As the cosmos was commanded by God, as the church was headed by Christ, as the body was ruled by its head, as the family was led by a father, so the kingdom was governed by a king. Because the system of hierarchies was understood to have been created by God, Renaissance political theorists could argue that the king received his power from God. In other words, he did not require the consent of the people to govern. A king who did not derive power from his people was ultimately not accountable to them. He was accountable only to God. For this reason, early modern men and women were told that they owed loyalty even to a bad king. The most frequently repeated political statement in Shakespeare's time was that force must never be used against the monarch. As Orlin emphasises, obedience was assumed. The alternative was disorder and chaos, exactly what comes about when Macbeth usurps power. And so back to cultural context. What sort of world is Scotland when we first see it? For a start, it's disordered and under threat. Leave aside for the moment the highly unsettling first scene with the witches and their fair is foul, foul is fair incantation. This is a society in war, threatened not just by foreign invaders, but even more disturbingly, internal traitors. Look at the captain's words in Act 1, Scene 2, as he describes how terrifyingly close Scotland came to defeat, saved only from the rebel MacDonald by Macbeth's killing prowess. Macbeth is described by the king as worthy, not because of any moral decency, but because of his military feats. And what sort of a king is Duncan? Sometimes, perhaps through comparison with his obviously unsuitable successor, he is lazily seen as some sort of warm, cuddly monarch with a big white beard, a kind of version of Santa Claus. But look more carefully. He's highly regarded, largely because he's held things together in Scotland until now, and is, as Macbeth later admits, so clear in his great office. He's also ruthless, and knows how to reward loyalty. He dispatches the previous Thane of Cawdor without any second thought, and efficiently rewards the hero of the, of the day. No more that Thane of Cawdor shall deceive our bosom interest, go pronounce his present death, and with his former title greet Macbeth. Later, Macbeth praises him to his wife when he says, he hath honoured me of late. And he certainly doesn't raise any objections when Ross says that they've demanded $10,000 from the Norwegians before they'll release the bodies for proper burial. There aren't any soft 21st century war conventions here, and you don't get to be respected in this society by being King Nice. In the key scene, Act 1, Scene 4, which I'll come to shortly, 
He celebrates success by appointing his own son as the heir, despite the fact that there's no sign that Malcolm has contributed at all to the military triumph. He has made his decision, and all will be expected to obey it. But no matter how efficient he has been so far as a king, there's only so much a king can do, and he's only a human being. After all, he hasn't been able to head off this war, has trusted a series of traitors, MacDonald, Cordor, and of course then Macbeth himself, and seems completely dependent on his thanes. It's difficult for us to put ourselves into this mindset, used as we are to staple democracy. Have a look at the 2008 American presidential election. A deeply unpopular president was replaced after his allotted two terms of four years each. The handover to the new President Obama took three orderly months, not once during which was the stability of the American political system challenged. But Shakespeare's is a very different world. A new king might not be up to the job, and has not been chosen for it. Those same pesky Norwegians try out the new king Claudius in the play Hamlet by challenging Denmark as soon as he comes to the throne. A new king determines everything, and Shakespeare expresses this very precisely in the words of a minor character, Rosencrantz, in the play Hamlet. And I'll read a quotation now of about ten lines and then go through it. This is what Rosencrantz says. The single and peculiar life is bound, with all the strength and armour of the mind, to keep itself from noyance. But much more that spirit upon whose wheel depend and rest the lives of many. The cease of majesty dies not alone, but, like a gulf, doth draw what's near it with it. It is a massy wheel, fixed on the summit of the highest mount, to whose huge spokes ten thousand lesser things are mortised and adjoined, which, when it falls, each small annexment, petty consequence, attends the boisterous ruin. Never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. So it's worth going through this quickly. The beginning, he says, that everyone must keep themselves from noyance or other harm, but much more that spirit, the king, upon whose wheel depend and rest the lives of many, in other words, whose wealth, upon whose welfare everyone depends. The cease or cess, the end of majesty, dies not alone, but like a gulf, a kind of whirlpool, doth draw what's near it with it. It is a massy wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount, to whose huge spokes ten thousand lesser things are mortised and adjoined, and we're the lesser spokes attached and adjoined to the king and completely dependent upon him, which when it falls, each small annexment and petty consequence, in other words, each individual attends the boisterous ruin, we're all part of it. And the final sentence there, never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan, we are all affected by what happens to the king. Shakespeare has given his Scotland a particular monarchical system. It's clear that it's not what we usually think of, which is called primogeniture, in which the oldest child inherits the title. Instead, it seems to be some kind of modified version of the Scottish system of tanistry, which is related to our own word tornishte, which was abolished in Scottish clans by James VI himself. On our blog, secenglish.ie, you can follow a link for a definition about tanistry. This was aimed at electing the strongest and best leader, but Duncan goes against this, 
the critic Rebecca Lemon writes, Electing to follow the newer system of primogeniture rather than tanistry, which would favour Macbeth, Duncan nominates his own son as king as part of the post-war spoils, an action which is ill-timed and impolitic, given Macbeth's own recent triumph in the war in contrast to Malcolm's captivity. Act 1, Scene 4 is therefore a key moment. It's plain, since Duncan does select Malcolm, that he could have chosen not to select him, and the most obvious choice is there for all to see. When Malcolm is appointed Prince of Cumberland, Macbeth says, That is a step on which I must fall down, or else o'erleap, for in my way it lies, stars hide your fires, let not light see my black and deep desires. He knows now that the only way he can achieve his ambition is by doing the worst thing he could possibly do. In the first Revision podcast, I discussed the speech in which he confronts this thing, so I won't repeat myself now. In the later Dagger soliloquy, he calls it the present horror. And when Macduff discovers Duncan's brutalised body, the only language up to the job is theological. Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. Most sacrilegious murder hath broke ope the Lord's anointed temple and stole thence the life of the building. It hardly needs me now to state how terrible Macbeth's rule of Scotland is. Having murdered the king, he sets off on a killing spree, disappearing into a solitary nightmare of immorality. He enacts the famous statement by the British politician Lord Acton, once, by the way, MP for Carlow. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The horror unleashed on Scotland by this violent disruption of the natural order is expressed in Act 2, Scene 4, by Ross and an old man. Everything is unnatural, even like the deed that's done. And as Ross says, Duncan's horses turned wild in nature, broke their stalls, flung out contending against obedience. Nothing's in the right place anymore. Obedience itself, the key element of the hierarchy of the great chain of being, is in retreat. I'll be discussing the other two kings we see or hear of in the play, Malcolm and the English King Edward, in next week's podcast. So more on the latter parts of the play then. For the moment, I'd suggest you look at a short scene near the end, Act 5, Scene 2, during which four minor characters discuss the state of battle and the state of the now-doomed King Macbeth. It's Caithness who says that Macbeth cannot buckle his distempered cause within the belt of rule, and Angus who adds that now, minutely, revolts upbraid his faith breach to such an extent that he's now a dwarfish thief. Thus they must depend on the medicine of the sickly wheel, which is Malcolm, a necessary purging of the political illness and cancer that Macbeth has brought to Scotland, a for once necessary rebellion against the holder of the holiest office in the land.